This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight, and this is a special holiday episode with a story from our main man, Micah. He calls it Christmas Trees and B-17s. It's a timeless story about a remarkable man named Cy Spiegel who flew the B-17 in World War II and went on to develop something that was unusual for the time, but commonplace now during the Christmas season. But I'll let Micah tell the tale. It's Christmas time again, a time of merriment, of warm thoughts of friends and family, tidings of comfort and joy and all that. It's now been seven years that I've been sharing Christmas stories with you. It's become a part of my life and one of my very favorite Christmas traditions, which, as you know if you've been listening all these years, are actually quite limited. Society in general, and Christmas in particular, is far more inclusive these days than it once was. As I've told you before, as a child, I always felt left out of Christmas. It just wasn't a holiday for me and all of my family not a part of our faith, and certainly not a part of our traditions. It wasn't that we were left out, but in many ways we were shunned away. You see, society changes over time and has changed tremendously over the past half century. While the world is still not as inclusive and all-embracing as it could be, it's certainly much better than it once was. For example, as I may have told you before, I learned from my mother before her passing that in the early 1960s, When I was four years old and my folks were shopping for the house I grew up in, our home for over 50 years that was only sold after my mother passed, anyway, at that time, we were excluded from one of the houses we were considering because the town didn't accept Jews. This wasn't necessarily legal, but nonetheless, it was a way of the world at the time. This same kind of discrimination was even worse back in the 1940s and 50s. Just ask Cy Spiegel. He can tell you. Who's Cy Spiegel, you ask? Well, he's a man who has probably had a bigger influence on your life than you know. And obviously, you've probably never heard of him before. Born in Manhattan on May 25, 1924, Cy grew up to be small in stature, only 5 foot 7 inches tall and 150 pounds. Still in high school when Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7, 1941, His older brother was drafted almost immediately after that fateful day. Cy soon realized that the draft would keep him from attending college, so thinking he might be more useful to the war effort, he changed his high school curriculum from academics to industrial arts. After high school, Cy took a defense industry job in a machine shop, figuring he might as well do what he could while awaiting the draft. But he soon found out that his machine shop job gave him a deferment from selective service something he found unacceptable. He didn't want to sit out the war at home and felt he could serve his country better in the armed services. So soon, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, and it turned out he was a valuable enlistee. His skills as a machinist placed him in aircraft mechanic school in the U.S. Army Air Corps. After basic training in Atlantic City, Cy was assigned to the Casey Jones School of Aeronautics for what was then the equivalent of an A.M.P., then on to LaGuardia Field and eventually to Roosevelt Field in Long Island. But Cy didn't want to be stuck behind the lines for the duration of the war. After all, he gave up a deferment that could have kept him out of the service entirely. Cy wanted a bigger part in the fight. He asked around, how do you get to fly planes? 
Eventually, he found out that by taking the bus from Roosevelt Field just a couple of miles to the recruitment office on Mitchell Field, he might be able to get reassigned. Fortunately, the U.S. Army Air Corps desperately needed pilots. Cy was almost immediately shipped off to Nashville for ground school and then to Santa Ana, California, where he learned to fly on the Ryan PT-19A. His advanced training took place in Douglas, Arizona, where he flew the Curtis Wright AT-9 Jeep, a strange-looking, unstable aircraft. So unstable, in fact, that while a total of 491 AT-9s were built, only two survive. One of them is in the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. And actually, that one is an amalgamation of two separate AT-9 wrecks that were combined to make one complete aircraft for static display. The other surviving AT-9 is a wreck that was recovered by the Pima Air and Space Museum. It's in such bad shape that it may never be able to be restored. You see, the AT-9 was so well known for its instability and being so very difficult to fly that even instructors were afraid to fly it. Nonetheless, Cy Spiegel managed to make it through his time training in it. After the AT-9, Cy went on to his type rating in the B-17 in New Mexico. From there, he was sent to Lincoln, Nebraska, where he met the men that would become his crew in Europe. What a journey for a young kid who had grew up in and had never left the New York City area before. But this was only the beginning of Cy's adventures. Now, though it can't be proven... It seemed that the B-17 to which Cy was assigned as pilot was sabotaged at the factory. Upon takeoff in Nebraska, on his way to England, one tire was so out of round that his wings wobbled up and down and side to side as he was going down the runway. He stopped the takeoff and eventually got the tire replaced. On his next takeoff attempt, all of the lights and instruments went out. The investigation found that an entire wiring panel had stripped out so it would short against the aluminum fuselage of the B-17 whenever it came into contact. After having the wiring repaired, he headed to Janeer Field in New Hampshire, now known as Manchester Airport. As he was landing, he saw they had a whole emergency crew standing by. Fire trucks, ambulances, the works. He figured someone was in trouble. When he touched down, he found out it was him. He was told they saw flames coming out of an engine, but when they checked it out on the ground, they found nothing. So off they went to Goose Bay, Labrador in Canada. The same thing happened when they arrived in Goose Bay. A whole emergency crew was waiting for him on the ground. But this time, the waste gunner saw flames coming out of the number two engine. There was nothing that could be done except to land and shut down. Fortunately, no one was hurt. The fire didn't spread and eventually went out. In the search for the problem, it turned out that there was a pinhole in the diaphragm of the fuel pump on number two engine. With the fuel pump directly over a turbocharger that gets red hot during flight, the leaking fuel dropped down to set off a flame coming out of the back of the engine. Fortunately, the flame didn't go back up into the fuel tank. If it had, the aircraft would have blown up. Eventually, size B-17 was made fit for duty, and he left Canada to arrive in England in September 1944. He was part of the 8th Air Force and stationed near the Channel, in Eye, about 100 miles northeast of London and about 18 miles from where Matt and Carlos sit in their PTUK studios. Cy was only 20 years old when he flew his first mission over Europe, a milk run, he was told, to where the German line was retreating in Belgium. It was an easy mission, and he thought to himself, this was going to be great. Here he was, Cy Spiegel, from New York City, 
five foot seven inches and 150 pounds, 20 years old, and in command of his own B-17. What optimism. Now remember, over 50,000 U.S. aircrew died during World War II, and most of those were on B-17s and B-24s. Over 20,000 of those were from the 8th Air Force. Cy was lucky for his first 32 missions, but things changed on mission number 33. It was February 3, 1945, a Saturday, early in the morning, when Cy Spiegel took his place in what we now call the Berlin Mission. Over 1,400 bombers and close to 1,000 fighters took off to destroy the headquarters of the Luftwaffe. It was a massive raid, what was referred to as a maximum effort, and for the first time, Cy had some misgivings. He knew this time, as he was bombing Berlin directly, there was no doubt that there would be civilian casualties. But he also knew that he needed to do his part to end the war. On his way to Berlin, he lost an engine. Cy said this wasn't too unusual, and he could still keep up with the formation. He could have turned back, but he didn't. He knew this was a maximum effort. Over Berlin, though, he was hit by flak, lost a second engine, and started to lose fuel. With only two engines left on his four-engine flying fortress, there was no way he could keep up with the group. He was flying into a headwind, losing altitude, and had to fly back into flak to get back to England. There was no way he could make it. Now, Cy knew that this late in the war, being captured by the Germans was going to be even more unpleasant than what POWs had experienced previously. By February 1945, many downed aircrew were being shot on sight, not just by soldiers, but by civilians, too. He and his crew wouldn't be safe making an emergency landing in Germany. But Cy also knew that Germany was on the retreat, and our Russian allies had taken Warsaw. He figured he and his crew would be safe once he got behind Russian lines. He told his navigator to plot a course to Warsaw and instructed his radiomen to relay their status to back to headquarters. Then, flying on only two engines and losing altitude fast, he had his crew jettison anything and everything they could to lighten the load. Out went ammunition, flak jackets, guns, anything that wasn't necessary to stay in the air. Cy made it to Warsaw and could see the city was truly torn apart by the war. He sighted the Vistula River and followed it downstream, where he spotted a single-engine Russian aircraft at about 200 feet. Cy partially lowered his gear and fired flares to signal the Russian pilot. The little plane waggled its wings to tell the crippled B-17 to follow. In formation, they flew low to the ground on a dangerous flight never more than 200 feet AGL over forests. Cy spotted an open, frozen-over potato field not far from the city of Plock, where he had enough room to make a belly landing. The B-17 was never to fly again, but neither Cy nor any of his crew were hurt. Soon they were surrounded by Polish villagers. Cy and his co-pilot shouted, Amerikanski! Amerikanski! Not wanting to be mistaken as the enemy. The villagers were shouting, Benzine! Benzine! They wanted the petrol from the airplane, which was leaking everywhere. The townspeople came rushing in with buckets to gather it up. The Poles brought Cy and his crew to their Russian allies in Plock, where they were treated like heroes. They were eventually transferred to a Russian-held abandoned German airfield in Torin that another American B-17 crew had used to make an emergency landing, having lost an engine and then a tire when setting down. The two crews figured they would only be there a week or so until the Americans sent a plane to recover them. But that was not to be. A recovery plane was never sent. 
While the air crews were not being held captive and more or less had free run of the base, they weren't allowed to leave without approval from Moscow. They were in a bureaucratic prison, but more or less were able to stay and do as they liked. Eventually they got tired of waiting and came up with their own plan. They decided to head back to the potato field where Cy made his emergency landing, about 75 miles away. They would take one of the remaining good engines and a tire from that plane and install them on the other crew's B-17 that still had three good engines. After bribing and bartering with Russian soldiers, they managed to get a hold of a tractor to use to haul back the good tire and working engine. They set out on the recovery mission and managed to get everything they needed back to Torin, where they cut down some telephone poles to use as hoists in lifting and replacing the engine. Then, using tools abandoned by the Germans, working in plain sight of the Russians, together, both crews managed to reassemble the B-17 into flying condition. Sai's skills as a machinist and his training at the Casey Jones School of Aeronautics sure paid off. On March 17, 1945, St. Patrick's Day, all 19 men from both crews got into the hastily repaired B-17 and taxied out to the runway to take off. No one really tried to stop them. With no maps, no nothing really, they plotted their route to try to avoid German anti-aircraft fire and flew for eight hours, about 800 miles, to Foggia on the east coast of Italy. When the B-17 was checked over by the Army Air Corps crew chiefs, two bolts were tightened. Everything else was perfect. Sai and his crew flew the same B-17 that they had escaped in from Poland back to England. But this wasn't the end of Sai Spiegel's service. After his daring escape, he went on to fly two more missions, completing a total of 35 before he was finally sent back home to the USA on August 31, 1945. Sai entered the war and fought for his country as a first lieutenant. He flew 35 missions as PIC of a B-17, including mission number 33, where he rebuilt a disabled flying fortress and made a daring escape to return to service. But Cy Spiegel was also sent home a first lieutenant, having never received a promotion. This wasn't unusual for Jews in the military back then. Discrimination played a major role in the armed services, and anti-Semitic factors kept them from promotions. This went on in the private sector as well. Although many World War II combat veterans with far less experience than Cy went on to work as commercial pilots in the growing airline industry after the war, as Cy Spiegel said, and I quote, they weren't taking Jews after World War II. They were blatant about it. It wasn't that they gave you some excuse. They told you, we don't hire Jews. Cy tried engineering schools. He enrolled at CCNY, the City College of New York. But he found he just couldn't deal with the immaturity of his classmates, who, even though they were close to the same age, didn't have the kind of worldly experiences Cy had gained during his time in the Air Corps. He ended up in vocational school and worked in various machine shops to support himself and his then-new wife. By the way, his wife, Motoko Akeda, spent most of the war with her family, confined to internment camps in California and Wyoming because her parents were born in Japan. And although that's a story in and of itself, it shows that this kind of discrimination was not limited to just one group. Eventually, Sai found a full-time job as a machinist, paying $1.80 an hour at a brush company in Mount Vernon, New York. So here's where our story changes a bit. You see, back in the late 1940s and early 1950s, window dressings were a big deal. TV was brand new, and not everyone had one. 
There were no mobile phones, no computers, and no Internet. Radio was the mass media of the day. The way people were introduced to new products was through newspapers and magazine ads, but mostly display windows. One of the big fads in window dressing at the time was to create colored wave designs by using millions of tiny multicolored brushes. Eventually this fad passed, as fads are apt to do, and the $12,000 machines, $12,000 being a fortune at that time, but yes, $12,000 machines that Cyrus responsible for at his company, American Brush Design, were no longer necessary. To try to get as much as they could out of these very expensive machines, the company executives came up with the idea to use them to make artificial Christmas trees. Unfortunately, the trees looked awful, being that they were made out of polyvinyl chloride plastic. There was no resemblance to real trees. Plus, and some of you may remember this, back then in the mid-20th century, artificial Christmas trees were a silvery aluminum designed to be illuminated by rotating colored spots shined on them to light them up for a constant color change. Nobody even considered that an artificial Christmas tree could ever look anything like the real thing. Cy thought better of it, though. He reported back to his boss and told him that he sincerely believed that artificial Christmas trees could be a booming business. Though only a machinist for the company, his boss believed him. The boss created the American Christmas Tree and Wreath Company as a new division and gave it to Cy to run. Cy was given free reign, and he was determined to make it a success and create artificial Christmas trees that looked so lifelike that the public would be proud to own and display them. He studied trees in the forest. He brought trees to the office to examine. He worked on his machines, using his machinist skills to create a tree in the factory that truly looked like it came from the wild. Eventually, his work was a success. Soon, American Christmas Tree and Wreath was selling beautiful, natural-looking artificial Christmas trees. The public loved them. In the mid-1970s, over 800,000 trees a year were coming off the line. That was one every four minutes. Cy Spiegel's idea was a success. So much so, that with three patents on artificial Christmas trees, he eventually left American Christmas Tree and Wreath to start his own company. In 1993, as a multimillionaire, he sold off his shares and retired. Not bad for a nice Jewish boy from New York City, who, even though a hero from World War II, was kept out of the airline industry through prejudice. As of this writing, Cy Spiegel is 98 years old. He lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in a beautiful apartment with a gorgeous view of Central Park. Recently, when asked if he had a choice on what his legacy would be, Christmas trees or his heroism during the war, he said that while the war was probably the most exciting time in his life, there's no one left to talk about it with anymore. To me, though, Cy will always be a military hero. But I don't think he's ever seen himself that way. I don't think he does to this day. When asked about it by the New York Times, Cy said, and I quote, I can tell you this. We fought against fascism. We fought against Hitler's desire for a master race. I never thought that fascism was a possible threat to our nation's democracy until now, right now. However, all I'm trying to do is stay alive. We have a lot of things to thank Cy Spiegel for. Not just for risking his life flying 35 missions in his B-17. Not just for rebuilding a downed aircraft and flying his way over occupied territory to come back and fly more missions in the 8th Air Force doing his part in helping to save the world from a fascist regime. But we need to thank him for much more than that. Cy Spiegel and I have a little bit in common 
in that neither of us ever celebrated Christmas growing up, never had it as part of our family traditions as a child. But Cy faced more adversity than I can imagine. Yet he's still a man who, to this day, helps bring a sense of peace and joy to the holiday season and fill homes all over the world with the Christmas spirit year after year. For the Airplane Geeks, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. Well done, Micah. A great story about a great man. Thank you all for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Find us at airplanegeeks.com. We have show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 730. That's the episode number. And you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.